0: Retake number three. Okay. (laughs) As I was saying, one of the key concepts for us to comprehend as Christians, either when we're reading the Bible or just thinking about our own life in Christ, uh, is the concept of eternal life. And eternal life, as we typically think about it, is indeed this idea that we're going to spend eternity with Christ and each other, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, for eternity in in the kingdom of God. And that is a key aspect of of eternal life. And it's certainly a strong hope. Um, However, the concept of eternal life also means that we have a quality of life now that should be different and characterized as the kingdom. So when, when Jesus Christ said, the kingdom has come in his coming, that's literally what he meant. And he said, the prophets have been fulfilled in your presence. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. We, we pray, Jesus instructed us to pray, for things to happen on earth as they do in heaven, which means that it is the, it is the will of God that the kingdom of God would begin to unfold now on this earth, and, and it's not something that we just look forward to in the future. And so when Paul says at the beginning of the book of Titus, he says That he is a servant of God, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of the gospel. And so with the preaching of the gospel, it opened up the opportunity for us to live the kingdom of God now, not in its absolute fullness, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but we can live the kingdom of God now through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, through the gospel that has empowered, that empowers us, and that has empowered the kingdom. And so the instructions then that follow, this, is, this was Paul's introduction to the book, so the instructions then that follow are instructions for us on how to walk in eternal life. They are laying the foundations, these instructions lay the foundations for the churches that they had just started on this island of Crete. And it's a prototype for us, all churches, to see that these are the essential foundations for what it means to be a church of Jesus Christ. These are the teachings necessary for us to experience eternal life now in present time. And one of the things that is heavily emphasized in the book of Titus. In fact, it's more heavily emphasized in the book of Titus than any of other Paul's letters, even though this is one of Paul's smallest letters, this idea of good works. And so we have been working through our series on mission. We're in the section on strategy, and we're looking at now this this ministry front, or this area that we are engaged in, um, in the sphere of good works, work that we are to be doing as As Christians. And so I want to look at two ideas here. What does it mean good? What does the word good mean here in this context? And then what are the works that God has called us to do? And so to begin with, first of all, the idea of good has two senses here in the book of Titus it's translated consistently there's two words but the, the, both words are translated into the word good but it's important to catch the nuance one of the ideas behind the word good in Titus is that it is morally true morally pure it is consistent with the standard of God's righteousness and so it's it's this idea of, of morality okay And that's, I think, how we typically think of good when we read it in the Bible, something that is morally sound, morally pure. But the second idea, and this is actually the dominant idea in the book of Titus, uh, is the idea that good also reflects what is sound, what is healthy, and what is beautiful. And so you have the mix of morally pure, but also that which is sound and healthy, And beautiful. And so, when Paul begins the second chapter, teach what is according to sound doctrine. It's it's doctrine that is accurate. It's doctrine that is moral. But most importantly, it's doctrine that is that leads to healthy, beautiful, sound lives. And we see a very heavy emphasis in the book of Titus on the attractiveness of our lives as being a witness to the world. And so. As the instructions unfold in chapters 2 and 3, we see that, that the reasoning behind the instructions are not just so that we'll be morally good in God's eyes. The instructions are there so that we would honor God with our lives, so that, that God would be glorified and honored because our lives are so beautiful and attractive. Um, the other one is that, is that we live in such a way that the, that the enemy, or anybody who has a, a, um, a prejudice against Christianity, would not be able to say anything bad about us because of the healthiness and soundness and goodness of our lives. And the third reason is so that, that um, it literally would make the teachings of Jesus Christ beautiful. Those are the three reasons that, that Paul gives for the instructions that he gives in chapters 2 and 3. And so it's, it's important that we comprehend that when we are given instructions by God to follow, yes, there is a moral component to it. But he's also giving us these instructions because they are the instructions towards eternal life. They, they, are, they are the instructions toward living lives that are healthy, beautiful, and sound and that, that bring joy to us and to those around us. And so that is, that is the characteristic of these works that we are to be engaged in. They are good works. And the word work just literally means a deed or an action. So there's this, this just this big general category of good works that we are to be engaged in. And the idea is spread throughout all three chapters um, and throughout all of Paul's letters as well. And so I want to break this down into three types of work that the Scriptures really have um, that give us some clarity on these good works. The three types are good occupations— this general category of good works, and then good works that meet pressing needs. And so we're going to go through these real quick because really these are the efforts that we as Christians are supposed to be engaged in. These are the things that we are supposed to be doing. And so the first one, good occupations. A good occupation is anything that produces goods and services for people. It's just really... Blanket general idea. Any work that produces goods and services that are good for people. Our work, if we recall Genesis chapter 1, our work is a reflection of the person and character of God who worked to bring about creation, to give us life, to provide for us food. And so our, our work as human beings is a reflection of what God did. And that God continues to do through Jesus Christ to sustain all things. So we've learned that that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Well, Jesus uses people. Jesus uses people to sustain everything here on earth. Food, clothing, shelter, anything that we as human beings need to survive. And it doesn't matter whether you are a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you are an atheist. or It doesn't matter what religion or, or no religion. If you are working, you are contributing to the work that God is doing to sustain all of humanity. There are good occupations. Now, obviously, there are some bad occupations. I, 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 jokingly, I, I, it, I can't, couldn't find the quote, but I think C.S. Lewis once said that, that uh, he couldn't think of an occupation that was um, more bad than that of advertising and marketing. He just figured that it's just not a good job to convince people to buy what they don't really need, because everybody knows what they need. Anyway, but he also said, and this wasn't jokingly, um, that the best work is homemaking. In all of the world, that the best work was homemaking. Anyway, obviously, there are some occupations that people engage in to earn money that aren't good, right? Right? lending money is a good thing we see it throughout the old and new testaments lending money toward enslaves people is evil all right so you can probably t- take any job and turn it into some sort of work that brings hardship and suffering to people well anyway we are called the good occupations and we're going to use this fall this fall series is going to be on work primarily from the books of first and second Thess- Thessalonians that have a lot of emphasis on work so that's the first category the second category is this this general idea of good works and and just generally the idea of good works is any deed that you engage in that is serving God or other people so just look throughout all of the things that God tells us to do throughout scripture and it's probably a good work Striving for, your, for righteousness as an individual, the disciplines that you engage in as an individual, whether it's study or prayer or service, or fa- those are good works. Loving and taking care of your family and your home, those are good works. Caring for church family, caring for neighbors, engaging in the various opportunities that our, that our cities and, and neighborhoods have and schools to help others out, to volunteer for other organizations that lead to human flourishing those are good works stewarding your resources saving for your kids or your grandkids providing for others supporting the work of the church and ministry those are good works submitting to government authorities any of the in any of the instructions that you see throughout scripture are good works in, anything in service to god Or to man that brings that, that's in obedience to God, then it brings service and help to others. Those are good works. So these are things that God has called us to do, these are the things that we are to be active in. The third thing pressing needs. Pressing needs are literally uh, things that have to be done because there is an urgency to them. There is a disaster looming if we don't address these various needs. We see that, that pressing needs come up in our, in our families, pressing needs come up in our churches, pressing needs come up in the world around us. And throughout both Old and New Testaments, we see instructions that tell us that we just can't be concerned about our own selves. We can't just be concerned about our own families. We just can't be concerned about our own church. We have to be concerned about the world as well. Galatians chapter 6 that Jonathan a few weeks ago uh, quoted, love everyone, especially the household of faith. So there are some priorities. Paul prays and instructs us to pray in Philippians that we would love each other and all. And obviously throughout the Old Testament, a lot of teaching and instruction on loving and taking care of the sojourners, of the poor, of immigrants, of those in other, from other nations. And so we see that, that pressing needs um, are not just constrained within our immediate spheres. We are obligated to help cases of urgent need whenever we see them, whenever we see them. And these really these come in in three different types. And this is, I was questioning whether or not to spend time on these, but I think it's really helpful So the 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 scholars and practitioners of of these kinds of efforts, pressing needs, emergency types of situations, categorize them into three different types. There's relief, and relief is just you you give food, you give money, you help pay somebody's electric bill. It's it's meeting the specific need that is before you. That's called relief. All right. Then there's Development. Development is helping people develop the skills so that they aren't always in need of relief. There's there's an effort to um, help them get to a point where they're self-sustaining. That's development. So there's relief, there's development, and then there's reform. And before we go on to the reform, development is a lot of the work that we engage in at Twin Cities Ministries with the uh, transitional housing in um, the work in treatment that we used to be involved in at Metro Hope, what we're doing there is development work. The work that we support the Man Up Club in as they work with uh, young men to help them stay out of, of crime and to finish school and to learn a vocation, uh, that's development work. The third category is reform. Reform is when you work to change structures, social structures, political structures, structures that are oppressive, structures that are discriminatory, structures that enslave and hurt people rather than help them. Engagement in that type of work is called reform, and so that's so people that usually are involved in reform work are lawyers or politicians or activists or lobbyists or volunteers that are working specifically to change structures now as you could probably tell and and um gina evans in her work for teen challenge is engaged in a lot of this so she works uh at the capitol a lot she knows uh, governor walls and is on a board with Governor Walz's wife on criminal justice reform. She's involved in a lot of boards and nonprofit organizations that are working with criminal justice reform. One of her associates, Justin Terrell, who's the executive director of the Minnesota Justice Research Center, will be speaking at our series on race and racism this summer. As you can see, these relief development reform, they're progressively more difficult and progressively more time consuming. It's it's a lot easier to, to give somebody money or a meal uh, to help them out with immediate need than to do the long, tedious, costly work that could take years to get criminal justice reform done through political means. Anyway, all three of them are important. All three of them are important. And, and, it, and people are going to be involved in these um, in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of people that um, have gifts of service, and they like to jump in and get their hands dirty and work directly with people and meeting the needs, those are people that have gifts of service. Not everybody has the gift of service. You know, and Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, you know, not everybody has the gift of tongues. Don't expect everybody to have the gift of tongues. And there are some Christian traditions that argue that everybody has to have the gift of tongues to demonstrate the Holy Spirit and that they're saved. Well, that's, that's not biblical. Not everybody has the same gifts. And so there are people with gifts of service, and they're able to meet needs. A lot of these folks are involved in the relief work, but there are people that are also leaders. Leaders identify a need, and they say, you know, we all need to do something about this, and they're good at gathering people and resources to go address the need. They actually may not be very good at meeting the need, but they're good at identifying and organizing so they so that the needs can be met. I I am am that type of a person. I am not very I like to work hard, but I'm not very good with with the immediate relief pressing needs stuff. I'll I'll work hard and meet people's needs. I don't stay at it very long and it doesn't motivate me. Leading does motivate me. Helping things get established and set up so that other people can can do the immediate hands hands hands-on ground level work. Then there are people that are researchers. They're studiers. They're scholars. They do the work that's needed to identify where exactly is the problem and how exactly can we fix this. Okay? Those, are, those efforts meet needs. People, some people, God is gifted uh, to engage in an occupation where they are very skilled at. It takes a lot of their time. It takes a lot of their energy, and they make a lot of money. And they may not have the time to get involved in the other things, but God has also given them the gift of generosity, that those, those gifts are then used to meet the needs that the reform workers have and the scholars and the leaders need to accomplish those things. So you, it takes a lot of different gifts to meet pressing needs. And we shouldn't expect everybody to have the same contribution, and so we, 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 we see that as, as, as the um, book of Titus unfolds, we see churches, so that, you know, the foundations are leadership, and we've spent time on that in the first section of this series. Leadership must be established. And then you have to have individuals and households that are walking with Jesus Christ, learning what it means to live by the Spirit, learning what it means to put off the old man and to put on the new man, learning what it means to live as an individual in the context of family. And as individuals and households grow and that they are ministering with and to other households and individuals as in the church family, families and churches grow gradually stronger and then are able to do more out. Right? So there is, a, there is a maturity progression uh, that you see in the book of Titus, and, and we could see the same thing for our individual selves or for our households as well. If we as a, as a brand new Christian see this massive need, and we don't have the, the spiritual resources, or we don't have the, the, the connections and fellowship with other saints, we're not going to be able to do everything that we just automatically see. So we have to build stronger as individuals as households and as a church, and as, as we grow and mature, we're able to do more and more for ourselves and able to do more and more uh, in the world around us. That doesn't give us an excuse to always say, you know what, I'm going to wait till I'm more mature before I do anything. All right. So there's always this constant tension of, of growing in our maturity as individuals and households and as a church, and of addressing needs that the Holy Spirit is leading us to address. And so we've always got this, this tension because we won't be mature if we say self-focused. God calls us to love others. Love necessarily means a sacrifice. And so we always have this tension of growing mature, growing strong, and, call, and having the call to help others, which is going to cost us. But as we see, what emerges is morally sound and good, and it's also beautiful. It's also healthy. And so this is our calling. This is the mission and ministry that God has given us to do, to engage in this full scope of good works. And yet, there are things that prevent us. There are things that prevent us from fully engaging in this whole spectrum of good works and we could any of us could fall down any place along the way and the reason why we're prevented or the reason why we just kind of never get around to it is is because we're not engaged in what Paul calls gospel training gospel training or we we come to a point in our gospel training where we We stop in the training and we go backwards. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. The grace of God in the gospel trains us. And it trains us in two ways. The first one, it says, is that it, it trains us to renounce ungodliness it trains us to anounce, renounce worldly passions, and it trains us to live godly and upright lives. Well, how does it train us to do this? How, essentially, how does it train us to put off the old man or the old woman of sin and to put on the new man or the new woman of righteousness? That's the question. How does the gospel train us? Well, primarily, in this area, the gospel changes our hopes, it changes what we pursue, it changes what we believe are gonna bring us life. See, we, we pursue our passions, we pursue ungodliness, we pursue sin because somewhere in our mind, we were trained, and in our flesh we were trained to believe that if I fulfill this passion, it will bring me lasting happiness and joy. And so because of that faith, we then put our hope in it, and then it becomes something that we love. We love it because we believe that it's going to bring us happiness and joy. And so the gospel changes our hopes because eventually, as we all know, the things that we pursue in fulfilling our passions and our desires Eventually, they bring disappointment because they don't. They don't bring lasting happiness or joy. And it brings heartache because the thing that we've loved has let us down. And so the gospel then comes in after we've jumped from one passion. And so it takes a long time for us to learn these things. It starts in our youth, all right? And the older we get, the more consequential our mistakes are. And eventually we learn, some, t- some of us are quick learners, some of us aren't, aren't so quick learners. Eventually we learn that, you know what, all these passions and desires that I'm trying to, that I'm seeking after to fulfill me, they're not working. They're not working. And so the gospel comes in by the grace of God and it says, these things are just going to continue to bring you death and sorrow, disappointment and heartache. There is a different way. Enter into the presence of God, know Him, enter into eternal life, fulfill what God has created you to do as a human being, made in His image, and you will find the joy and the happiness that you are seeking. That's the gospel. And so it is the grace of God that reveals to us that there is another way to live life than pursuing our worldly passions. And along the way, and this is where some of us get stopped or stuck. We recognize that as hard as we try, we still suffer. We still experience heartache. We still experience disappointment. And that's because we still embody a corrupt body. We still live in a corrupt world. And we have suffering. And oftentimes we pursue passions and worldly lusts to give us some relief from that suffering. And what we've done is we've just bought into the old lie again. And this is why the gospel also trains us in what Paul calls the blessed hope. The blessed hope, which is the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. And so we have have these hopes, I think maybe in two planes. We have the hope of eternal life, which is not just a forever away, or at least when we die we'll be able to experience it. There's that aspect of our hopes geared towards eternal life, but there's also the daily hope of eternal life in that each and every day that I live in Christ, I'm going to grow in my experience of his presence and spirit more and more. Each day I can grow in eternal life. And so we have to have both planes because the the day-to-day hope in eternal life recognizes that it's not going to happen immediately. But it can happen gradually. And the long-term vision of eternal life recognizes that someday I'm going to shed this body. I'm going to get a new one. This world is going to be destroyed. God is going to make a new one here on this earth and that there will be an eternal kingdom. We have to keep both hopes going, the hope in the day-to-day experience of eternal life and the hope in the long term when the day-to-day disappoints us because it will, as we all know. So that's one way that the gospel trains us. It trains us to put our hopes in things other than worldly passions. But it also trains us towards humble service in freedom. And this kind of goes to the other end. See, contrary to our passions, we can think that we're going to achieve joy and happiness, quote, eternal life, in in pursuit of good works. We think that the more holy and righteous and disciplined we become, we're going to be increasingly happy in this world. We believe that God's going to favor us for all of the good that we do. And then he's going to bless us because he owes us. We either think that or we get saved. We believe through faith in the, in the, in the work of Jesus Christ to forgive us, for, to forgive us of our sins and then we now think that it's our responsibility through good works to prove ourselves to God that we're worthy to be Christians. So both of those ways, thinking that our works are gonna gain God's favor for salvation or, think, or thinking that after we were saved, we now have to prove to God that we're worthy of that salvation. Both of those mindsets will just lead us to destruction. Destruction. They're not going to lead us to freedom. They're going to lead us to slavery. It's not going to lead us to the experience of eternal life. It's going to bring to death. Because fundamentally, in both of those ways of thinking, we believe that there's something about us that makes us good or something that we do that makes us good. And so we always have that pressure to prove our goodness, to prove that we are, have, have worth, and who we are or what we done or what we do then becomes our sense of identity our sense of self worth our sense of self eventually this exhausts us okay, just like people that pursue all of their passions come to a point of recognizing that this is not working the same thing happens to a person that puts their sense of worth in what they do or who they are because we eventually fail we, we fail to meet the standards that we've set up for ourselves um, or we completely violate them. We, we never attain the perfection that we think we ought or we just completely violate them altogether. And so here the gospel trains us in a little bit different way. The gospel trains us here in that it shows that our, our sense of self, our self-worth, our, self, our, our, our identity is not dependent upon who we are or what we do. It's dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And so the gospel gives us our justification. The gospel gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I can never be more accepted. I can never be more worthy. I can, God could can never more delight in me than he already does, not because of my own works, but because of who Jesus Christ is and my faith in Jesus Christ's identity for me. And then we're free. We don't have to be jealous of others that are that that are or are acquiring things that we want but are quite out of our reach. That leads to jealousy and ambition or arrogance. It frees us from arrogance because in this in this quest to find a sense of worth out of who we are or what we do we're always evaluating that on the basis of where we stand with other people which either again leads us to jealousy i'm not as good as them i don't have what they have or it leads us to arrogance i'm better than them they're not like me those attitudes those attitudes don't lead to service those attitudes don't lead to love those attitudes don't lead lead the good works, because it's all about you. People are, you're using people for your own sense of worth. That's enslaving. The gospel enables us to be free. We don't have to think about ourselves. We, have, we can self-forget, which means that we can genuinely start thinking about others and how to love them, how to engage in good works, because I'm not using them. How they respond to my helps um, it doesn't make a difference. I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm loving because he's commanded me to love. How they respond makes no difference to me. The Spirit has washed us and the Spirit has regenerated us. We are a new creation, free to love. So that's how the gospel trains us. It keeps us from licentiousness, which is us doing anything that we want to do, and it saves us from from arrogance and jealousy. It saves us from legalism. And only when we're free of these two things can we engage in good works. So as, we, as I close here and as we think about the three spheres, so we've got our individuals and households, we've got our house churches, and then we've got the organized church. If you look at the book of Titus or the book of 1 Timothy, these two books are really written towards um, what the organized church needs to be doing in order to equip and strengthen the church as a whole. If we think about the sphere of good works, the good works that that is the responsibility or that are the responsibilities of the organized church are actually fairly small. There's preaching and teaching and leading and shepherding and exhorting and very small sphere. Individuals and households and for us house churches actually bear the bulk of responsibility for the good works, whether it's good works in their families or their neighborhoods or workplaces, we're equipped to strengthen you to serve in those spheres. Though all the church is then responsible for all of these good works and pressing needs that exist in the world. So when we think about spheres, and we think, you know, when, when, uh, when we were going through the different traditions of churches, there are some traditions that overly emphasize the individual in their work in the world, and really neglect the the collective church. And then there are groups that overemphasize the collective church and undermine the individual in the household. And so oftentimes, the needs that emerge, the needs that emerge in a church community the things that you, see all, that you all see as needs, whether it's in your families or whether it's in your church or whether it's in your neighborhoods or in the city or in the nation, the church identifies those things. You as the church. It is then also your responsibility to say, hey, what can I or my family or our house church or us as a collective organization, what can we do to meet those needs and, and I really want to emphasize this as we close here. Um, you don't need the permission of, of the leadership. you don't need the permission of the organized church to meet the needs that are in your spheres. All right if, if you see needs that need to be met, start meeting them and if they kind of grow beyond your sphere, talk to your house church. And if that grows and there's fruit, maybe God is calling us as an entire church to participate in something. That's how we see things emerging here at Twin Cities Church in terms of meeting pressing needs. So that's what God has called us to. But really, if you feel a burden that there's something that we should be involved in, pray. God might be leading you to take charge in meeting that need. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, the gift and the hope of eternal life that you give us and the instructions that you give us calling us out to, to uh, the world that has all kinds of needs and all kinds of opportunities for good works in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in the world. So God, we, we, we're thankful that, that, that you have called and chosen us and have justified us through Jesus Christ to... To this, to this eternal life. And our prayer, God, is that you would strengthen us as, as Twin Cities Church here in this city and in this state. Help us to engage in the works that uh, you have called us to do. Help us to see clearly, resource us, God, for these things. Grow us in unity to meet these needs. In Jesus' name, amen.